0: Once you go IPD, you never want to do anything else ever again. (laughs) And I feel the same way. Or once you go high-intensity, right? Once you go (laughs) high-intensity lean. My first lean experience was on a hard bid job. But I just want to start off by asking you, thank you both for following my content. And I will say, the two of you being on the show, it was actually requested by fans of the EBFC show. I've got...
1: Yes, multiple
0: people reached out to me and said, you've got to get Kelly and Melissa on the show. And so for all the fans watching wow. the show, you <laughs> ask and you receive. So this is, this is for you. And fans, is- Yeah, while, while they're looking, and you guys give me some feedback on that, if you like these guests and you ask for this, make sure you tap that like button. Because we're not going to make content like this unless you engage and exercise your fingers. Give us a comment as well. Go ahead, Kelly. You were saying?
1: Oh, I just um, humbled and flattered. And uh-huh. it's nice to hear that something that we're doing is resonating with people. So thank you. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, 100%. It's uh, That's wonderful to hear. And it's, it's hard work uh, <laughs> doing the work that we all do. But I think we do it because we love it. So, yeah
0: yeah you do you both it shows in and what you do, and you know it's not uh we were talking before we started the recording, and uh Kelly was just mentioning how she likes to keep up with all of the the change makers on social media and it it sometimes it could be overwhelming like today i mean it's a perfect example today Jason put out a post where he kind of spread all the books that he's published in less than two years. And At
2: his publishing is unbelievable. It may, I, sometimes I'm like, what am I doing
1: wrong? Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, Jason has a, a team of people that helps him. And he has a recipe and he's, of course he's scrummed the whole process. So he gets That's like, it. It, it goes through a whole framework. I got to be with him on, on his first book. And then I'm a guest contributor on lean tact, which is like my favorite. The tagline, yeah. of course it's like a scrum chapter, but it's just, it just goes to show like. The right process will deliver exactly the right type of results you want.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that because if we happen to touch on this at some point in our conversation, there are so many resources out there at our fingertips for people to learn from, and it's just up to everyone to go out and consume them and learn from them and be curious because it's there's so much out there that can help people and inspire people in like less than five minutes. You know, if you just kind of go out and, and see. So Melissa, all we need to do, I'm hearing from this is get Scrum certified and grow our, double, double our team. You know,
2: Scrum certified, double our team, better plan out our social media posts, get more prolific in our reading, which are all things I am totally down with. So.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. We're all, I think the three of us have that in common. We're addicted to learning.
2: Absolutely. Yes.
0: I knew yeah. we were all kindred spirits and this was a, a good, this was worth the wait to have you all come on the show. So I appreciate, appreciate you so much. I'm going to kick off the show right now and we're going to dive right in. You have no idea what's coming yeah. your way. Everybody buckle up. This is going to be a show you're going to watch over and over again. Oh boy! I'm personally going to rewatch this at least a hundred times because some of my most favorite topics are coming out in the show welcome to the ebfc show the easier better for construction podcast i'm your host felipe engineer manriquez this show is all about the business of construction today's show is also sponsored by the lean construction institute lci is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone check the show notes for more information now to the show welcome to the show kelly mead and melissa McEwen. first of all melissa did i pronounce your last name right
1: you nailed it oh first time. I'm so, I'm sure there's another that. way to pronounce that but i you'd, i would like to hear how you would that's you'd be good, surprised good creative.
0: What, what comes through my mind Oh, yeah, you no, people
2: stuff. say like McCune, because there's so many different spellings of it. Yeah. So <laughs> both
0: is. of you are working at Alien Aldrich, a company I have a ton of respect for, and I've met many people that have had their lives transformed by what you're doing. And if people are listening to this and you're thinking, how can a company transform people's lives? I've had grown men and women with tears in their eyes telling me about the impact That the two of you and your greater team has made on them. So I am beyond humbled to have you both on the show to share. Let's dive right into our favorite topics lean design and construction. So, people, for an expanded description of who these amazing individuals are, click on the description below. So, thank you for that. Kelly, we're going to start with you first as a lean master black belt and a lean journey program manager. First of all, you don't give me the typical lean black belt type of spidey clipboard, like you're going to punish me type of vibe, <laughs> which I super appreciate. Some of my industrial engineers give me that vibe and it's well-deserved. So you don't have that. I like that. But I want to ask you, what inspired you to dedicate your career to promoting lean and design and construction?
1: So I would say, say it was two things. Uh, I, I joined Haley Aldrich at the same time that uh, our, we hired a lean sensei, Steve McIntyre, So this was 2005, and I had never heard of Lean. I mean, I'd heard of Lean a little bit, like in business school, you know, in operations class, supply chain management, something, something, Um, but it had absolutely no relevance to my life. Um, So, you know, I just had this, I developed this relationship with um, our Lean Sensei and saw what he was trying to do, which was bringing... You know, bringing his approach uh, to our company because we were seeking to do better, to deliver more value um, in a rapidly changing uh, industry where some of our services were kind of you know commoditized, uh, we were experiencing um, you know we would we would deliver uh, on our projects, but sometimes with heroics, and so you know that leads to an inconsistent client experience and an inconsistent staff experience. So started working on that, you know, in 2005. And I was just really inspired and I learned. And the more I started working at HD and I'm not an engineer or scientist, I kind of come from a uh, uh, business and, you know, background, I was just really struck by how much need there is to work a different way. So, you know, you go where the need is. So people, once they started Kind of trying new things and experimenting and saying, isn't there a better way? And then using their own ideas and testing their own ideas to actually get better results. That's when I was hooked because I saw the power of people using their own ideas with some coaching and some resources, you know, by others to change the way they were doing something and seeing a better result. And then they were hooked. So that's really what got me into lean design and construction. Let's apply these principles to where we're working and where people have the need.
0: I love that story, Kelly, and it it touches on a couple of things for me personally as well. And I'm I'm a little jealous that you got started before I did. So you have a four year <laughs> head start on me. I'm a fast learner, Kelly. I'm, I'm a I'm an open sponge, ready to just take of it intrigue. all in. Right as you can see, you're skeptical at first. I had a similar reaction to when I was first hearing about this from a team. I resisted it as well. And the thing for me that that made me even just open up a little bit was that I saw that the people sharing what they were doing were generally happy people. And at the time, I was not happy.
1: Wow! Wow!
0: So, so it made a has I mean, made a big difference for me. Now, I wanna
1: yeah.
0: now coming to you, Melissa, with a different question. Melissa, you've yeah. had a a focus on industrialized construction, which is like a buzzword, you know, nowadays Ordinary. I can't I can't get into anything and not see it. And you have an, an additional focus too on the, the secret sauce for what makes high performing teams, which I really love. I definitely want to unpack that a lot, but can you explain for the people listening to the show that might not have done the reading and know what does industrialized construction mean or industrialized construction manufacturing mean why is it important for people in design and construction today?
2: I think uh, you know it was interesting. I don't. I didn't intend to land in this place where now we're focusing on industrialized construction. But be, like Kelly, on my lean journey for about twenty years, uh, similar. Like for me, it was just I discovered it by accident. It was the best problem solving method I'd uncovered—a way to bring people together to solve problems—and so. I'm going to bring this back to industrialized construction, I promise. So, like, as I sort of saw where that industry was headed um, and some of these big, big challenges we have, I think, to me, industrialized construction is actually the application of lean in a holistic way to the construction industry for the first time. That's my personal view of it. Um, you know, I think if you talk to others about it, you'll hear that it is the application of manufacturing method and a mindset to how we build, whether on-site or off-site. Industrialized construction does not equal prefab, though prefab is an element of industrialized construction. It is the application of systems thinking to our supply chain. Uh, it is the application of um, uh strong design and construction principles coming together to transform how we build Um, it embodies so much but to me it actually really just is about bringing a lean whole systems operational mindset to construction i i do think industrialized construction the term will go away it's just going to become operationally excellent construction. It's learning from what other industries before us have done to bring these more industrial principles, how they work with the supply chain, how they manage things, how they make things, how they do product development to construction.
0: Oh, I absolutely love that. And you, you're you sparking on something about vocabulary and what's in vogue right now. And oh, Everyone <laughs> who plays in the space and has jobs like we do. You know, we've, we've run around with these labels and, uh, I've, I've heard from folks like at Mark three specifically, I've had Dan and Michaela on the show. And Dan was like, it's his trigger word is prefab. So for people listening to the show, I'll put a link down to that show. If you want to make Dan upset, I'm just going to give you the, the make him angry button. Just tell him he does great prefab and he will fly off the handle. I think that, you know, Melissa, you're you're tapping into some things about reaching deeper into the supply chain. When I was first starting out as a young, fresh out of school electrical engineer that didn't know anything about construction, the people that I was working for at the time were all like 30 plus year people. They were like 10 years of runway before they went to retire. Mm -hmm. And they taught me things about reaching into the supply chain, effectively communicating in that kind of vanished after a couple of projects. When those mm. people left the industry, it's almost like we forgot how to talk to the people we buy our stuff from.
2: We had, I think that's really insightful and it makes me like, it's heartening to know that you had that experience early in your career because I do, I think we put our, I don't know how it happened. It must've happened early in all of our careers, right? But we we went into our silos. Things I think became adversarial. Maybe it's contracts and risk management and things like that, right? They start to elevate and you sort of start to, I don't know, dehumanize in some ways the work we do. Um, and vocabulary, right? We how, What we call people, are they supply partners? Are they trade partners? Are they suppliers? Are they vendors? Are they true partners in project delivery? And so I think vocabulary matters. So, so, so much in so many ways to what we're doing. Um, I, you see, you did trigger a nerve with me with that
1: vocabulary matter. So I'm with you, Dan, um, on that.
0: (laughs) On the brief, How about you, Kelly?
1: It made me think of the Toyota principle engage your people and partners in the improvement. So this is not a singular act, you know, changing how you're going to do things trying things out, you do it with people. And, you know, <laughs> construction's not special. Um, if all these other industries have figured out how to work with people more effectively, we can too. This is a people business. So when we talk about, you know, I think high-performing teams is also a buzzword. You know, we have to sure. use it, you know, and it, it's a way in, I guess, Um, because people say, well, of course I wanna be a high-performing team. and. You kind of help them point out, well, you know, where are you experiencing problems? And they realize, oh, maybe we're not where we could be. We're not at our potential. And so, you know, we could use this phrase to say, but you could be here. Let's map out a way to get there together. But really, it just comes down to finding out what each of us can bring to the work, whatever industry you're in, making sure there's, uh, you know, a, a path forward and that you have two things the initiative to do something different. And the means and methods or resources that are made available. And, and I think that's why we're, we're at this maybe tipping point or hopefully at a tipping point where, um, we both, we, you know, listen, I were talking earlier about this. Like, what's a big hurdle right now? Why, why are people, why isn't everyone adopting industrialized construction and, you know, high performing teams, et cetera? And we were talking about the fact that. Sure, we had the innovators and the early adopters. So if you look at like the diffusion of innovation, like what critical mass you need to really pervade the industry and make a change. You have to jump over this chasm. So it's not enough to have the early adopters. You have to jump over to get the, um, you know, more of a mainstream. And, you know, people have been kind of stuck thinking, I can't change or we don't have the tools or whatever. Not construction. We're special, and you know, I think we're starting to see that we have the means and methods. You know, we have tools and approaches. We have the digital twin. We have all this technology that we're not necessarily taking advantage of, but could. And we're starting to get acknowledgement. Oh, this is all about people. And if we tackle behaviors and get the right behaviors to make this shift we can make that leap over together. So we're, we're excited to get over that chasm.
2: (laughs) I think we're, I think Kelly and I talk about this a lot. We think I like, I've never been more excited about the future of construction. And I, I know, I know not everybody feels that way. People feel the pressure of the labor shortage and the supply chain and, oh, everything's changing so much and the technology and it's overwhelming and we have all these disconnected digital tools and all those things I hear and I feel them. And yet I've never felt more optimistic in my gut that we're actually really finally on a path of transformative change. Uh, And I, you know, that's not a very data-driven statement I just gave you. I can't give you a thousand (laughs) examples of my proof, but I... I really truly feel that way. And I think it's part of what keeps me so engaged in the work that we're doing because I'm like, it is happening. I just know we're on the right path finally.
0: In the human part, the touch people that come and go in a lot of construction companies, the attrition rates or the turnover rates can be way higher than 25%. And and especially in general contractors, medium-sized companies, it's not uncommon for 50% turnover Mm -hmm. and on projects that are challenged. Like that we work in as internal yeah. and external consultants, those numbers can be even higher. Earlier in my career, I was on a job where we had over 80% attrition on a project where it's the project created the conditions where people had to leave to survive.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Right. And I, Melissa, I don't know if I'm just brain damaged, but I stayed. I, I st- know,
2: me right? too. <laughs> right. But I,
0: I am a hundred percent with you. I feel optimism and hope that I didn't have. Six years ago. And Kelly, you said it mm. before too. There is so much information. When I first started looking at lean things, there was nothing for construction outside of like a few white papers sure. published on some like super obscure websites that nobody mm. besides me and the person that wrote it and their mother and, and brother
1: <laughs> has read it. A little right? academic.
0: A little <laughs> academic. But now there's just like an avalanche and they're. There are construction podcasts focused on this type of people thing. That we have like great. people talking about vulnerability live on LinkedIn mm-hmm. events in the construction industry that has never had before.
2: And we, I can't fathom that this kind of thing isn't what's going to help us attract the next generation to our industry. We are like reframing the perspective that others out there have, I hope. About what construction is, um, we have a diversity problem for sure. Um, we have so many, but we're talking about these things. People are acting on them. We're you're hearing stories about tech. You're hearing stories about diversity. You're talking about how people are collaborating. People are topically openly talking about, you know, the mental health crisis in construction. And um, I think if we're talking about them and acting on them and trying to change them. It's the kind of thing that's going to attract a whole diverse set mm-hmm. of people to our industry. A variety of skill sets. I, I do think you're getting you're you kind of uncovered. Maybe what's giving me the hope, Felipe, is some of that stuff that's happening.
1: That I think you're you're really hitting on something. Or, you know, the the couple of things that can really attract more people, which we really need, as we know. Like there's there's this uh you know talent prices, and it's not for lack of talent it's that you know people have this perception of what construction is so two things that can be so attractive are wow there's a lot of innovation and technology in construction design and construction so you know we got to talk about that and keep talking about it and this is a place where you can form really productive connections with other people. And at a very basic level, that's what we all need. There's data on that. What engages people and what drives people to do their best and be happy, you were talking about happiness, Felipe, is the ability to connect with others. And when we're not able to do that and when we're working within our silos and we're not able to share information that we need, we're not connected and that doesn't feel good. So, you know, to the extent that we can be talking about those things, um, using very real uh, examples, practical, real life results like that are showing people, oh, here's all the great things that we're doing in technology and here's how we're connecting. If we keep showcasing the good, then maybe we can create more of this positive cycle you know, reinforcing cycle um, that we're on. I'm I'm also very optimistic.
0: I am too. I'm like, and I even listened back to my season one of my podcast. I had Stephanie Roldana and we talked about this with a couple of different guests. And she was saying, you know, we weren't, and I'm included, I'm in the we, encouraging our kids to pursue a career construction. And she had a daughter who was actually very interested. And it was her daughter's liking of what her work was. That was like, she was almost fighting her daughter not to want to do it. And then she's realizing, what am I doing? And then I, it made me realize, and I talked about it with my wife and son afterwards. Like, have I ever encouraged you to think about construction? My son's like, never. He's like, you never encouraged me. So that was, that was four years ago. Uh So fast forward this summer or still it's spring, this spring, I got a, When you travel as much as I do, you forget what season actually is yeah. So (laughs) So this earlier this spring, my son said, I would like to come to work in construction and do a job like you do. It's like, what do I have to do? And so we started talking about, you know, construction management or engineering, and we're still having the dialogue, but he's like, he's in. And he even said he was having a tough day in school. Uh, some time ago, they had like a lot of tests and stuff and kids don't like being tested, like just like adults, <laughs> right? And uh, he said, I watched on his own. He watched a live stream that I did. And he's like, you got me so excited and I'm glad that I'm coming into construction.
2: Wow.
0: And I thought that is insane. I was like, that was the whole purpose of why I do all these podcasts. So I <laughs> so that was, but I to, I want to ask you both, You know, both of you who worked in a variety of professions and you had different roles and you both come at this from different places. And I think people listening will be obvious, like, you know, what, what's bringing the three people like us together. But in your experiences, what's been the most significant challenge that you see construction people facing now, specifically when they're reaching for lean or industrialized principles?
1: We were talking about this a little bit before. We have a, a couple of ideas. What's so challenging? So one of the things, and Sir Melissa, you'll chime in. Um, you know, one of the big, one of the big challenges we see is, um, you know, you can see it that we had the innovators and the early adopters, right? And jump on the lean bandwagon and let's do value stream mapping. Let's do pull planning. Let's create a IPD contract. And these are all technical fixes. These are. Things that you do that, yes, might make a difference, that might change the conversation, but they're not enough. And when we say technical, we mean when you, when you know the, what the problem is and you know the solution. And you can pretty much act independently and like say, OK, I need A to fit with B. Put A and B together. Done. But a lot of what we're seeing in this industry is collaborative or adaptive challenges where you actually don't know what the problem is, which requires team learning to find out what the problem is we're trying to solve in the first place. And it requires people to work together in a team to also figure out the solution. So you can think about, yeah, we have so much time pressure, the schedule meet the cost, and we don't kind of, thank you, Jason Schroeder, Kevin Rice, for, you know, I was, I, I had a huge aha. We don't allow for buffer. We don't build in buffer for figuring out what the problem is in the first place and then collaboratively figuring out the solution together. We don't allow time and space or means and methods for that, although those exist, but it's continuing to talk about doing things in a different way. That That's what I see as, you know, we see as, as one of the big hurdles is like treating something like, oh, we just do this. I'll stay on schedule versus, oh, we need to step back and take a different approach here. And that's going to require, you know, maybe some time and some different approaches. I
2: also think one of the challenges Kelly and I talked about is that, like, that we all are so tied to our identities and what makes us who we are. Like, um, I'm an engineer, I'm a, a an electrician, I'm a plumber, uh, I'm an architect, and I think sort of where we're headed and trying to truly for the first time, maybe transform our means and methods for the first time in a long, long time, how we create this critical infrastructure out there. Roles are blurring and people's identities are blurring. And that's really, really hard um, uh, just to, to cope with. And so we see that a lot on jobs that people are just they're in their mindset of their role, even on the most collaborative jobs, you know, the a, a wonderfully set up IPD job, your identity and your role, it's so ingrained in the history of your company, I think, and it, it just is out there. And so we that's one of the challenges we see, even with people on the early end of the adoption of innovation curve, the change agents, the people trying to work differently, um, what it means to... I didn't want to say build, but I'm going to say build. What it means to build the things that we're building right now, design them, create them, the roles are blurring. And I think they're going to look very different um, in a decade. And I just think that's a really hard change to go through. We don't actually have answers about how to solve it, but we definitely try to facilitate seeing of it. (laughs) Go see, ask why, go understand what's happening at a different place in the system because you're not working just on your thing and your lane and your role anymore
1: you know and and then engaging people to own the creation of the roles and behaviors that will work for them in the project you know we we help implement what we create like electrician is a great
2: example right like the electrical contractors do a lot of design but they don't think of themselves as designers um at at all right and a common challenge we uh uh, encounter when we're working with uh like an electrical contracting company might be right how they start to approach design because they're doing prefab and they're thinking about the field install and all the coordination but they're putting design professionals or technology professionals or BDC experts into those roles. Um, and then they're leaving the quote unquote, builder electricians, the foremen, the folks in the fab shop downstream. But those folks are designers. They're designing it as it's being built. Um, so, that, I mean, that's just a little example, I think, of even how people progressing uh, on this path. It's really hard to get them to think of themselves that way. But when we ask that question, they're like, oh, you right? I do design. I design every day on the fly and like, right. So let's move that expertise further up in the system. So
1: helping those, you know, people who thought of them as I'm the designer or I'm the engineer yeah. not have an identity crisis because other uh-huh. people down the chain are also contributing to the function design doesn't mean that you're not valuable. It means you have another role to play in collaborating with said contractor on the design.
0: Kelly, you just Good reminded thing. me, I was at a collaborative meeting one time and this was a, a new team to design build. So not even super high collaboration, but it's, it's getting there, right? And the, the architect in several meetings said, I'm the architect. With even more indignation that I can conjure up right now. They, yeah. And everybody, after like the second or third time that it happened, it would be always followed by a tirade of why basically the rest of us were idiots. And thank God this person was there. I had responded the third time, and I said, "I'm but a simple, sometimes stupid general contractor." I said, "Thank you for being here." And reminding us what your title is because we forgot. And after that, oh. it, it never happened again. He never said that again. And another time in my career, a project director took me to the side and said, you're, we're going to put you on Saturdays, not be, not only because you're the new person, but because it's the only day where you'll actually have breathing room and we want you to take our foreman, our labor foreman to breakfast. And and you're going to pay for breakfast. And he's like, you're going to pay and then we'll let you expense it. But he's like, don't, he's like, don't tell the labor foreman you're expensing it. We want him to think that you're buying him breakfast because mm-hmm. you're doing the right thing. And they said, just talk to him. That's what the director said, just talk to him. This is part of your learning, your education. And we would go to this little breakfast place in Chicago. It was this little diner. It was incredible. Like the things that we would talk about, what I learned from his 40 years of being a labor foreman or working directly in this building we were on this I don't even know like how many projects he'd had by this point I never had that again in my career
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right there are different times where I got to shadow people but nothing like that where we're off the job getting paid to be on the job we're learning so it counts this was for a billion dollar company I don't know how You know common this was so people listening to the show i mean you tell me if if anything like this is still happening i've not seen this again in a long time
2: and why would it even I, i you got my brain going that like even where it is happening for onboarding or mentoring sort of more junior folks coming in through a company well what a shame that is i would benefit from that everyone would benefit from that at every stage in their career um and it's i think we have it's something that maybe we've mentally applied just to it's what we need to do to get you
1: ready um to then go off and be independent and self sufficient mm-hmm. and that's that you said and you said something there you said you you had so much learning yeah and and we don't intentionally design in time to learn from each other or venues or opportunities to learn from each other and i think that's the big gap is we're not doing enough learning we're we're doing a lot of doing and we're showing up expected to be experts or we think we're expected to be experts and so we're going to act like experts the director
0: told me kelly he said he's like you studied you had a had a bs in electrical engineering he said, that's pretty much worthless on this type of job. Now there was a, a significant mechanical and uh, MEP punch list that I did for like two years and got some really strong neck muscles doing overhead punch. I learned a lot about how to find defects that i still to this day. I can't just walk into a building and not find all the problems in three seconds, but he said, he's like, I've got to like, have you unlearn the nonsense that you learned in school. Yeah. And have you learned from people who are experienced? Because you've all been, you've all been theory and books and maybe, maybe your circuits class was good for you. We'll find out when we talk to the electrician, if we really learned anything or not. <laughs> and we just recognizing like, even knew like what I studied, right. I, I've gone to projects today where you ask people like, how do you know each other? Like, how do you know that that project manager has the capability to negotiate these change orders? And people are like, well, the t- title is PM right? Or her title is project manager. Like they should just know. And I was like, how do you know they know? Mm. I I asked those annoying questions that I'm sure the two of you also get into.
2: Yeah. And (laughs) both accused of being annoying for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And intensely curious.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and it makes me, it reminds me that, uh, we assume that the more seasoned or senior you are in a job, the less mentoring and learning you need to do, which is a bunch of you know what? You um, can say bullshit, Kelly. More... Kelly. this is
2: a construction show. Go yeah. ahead. Say it. This is... Bunch
1: of crap. <laughs> I was just going to say cramp.
0: Okay, Kelly said um... cramp. I said bullshit for the record.
1: <laughs> and it's, it's just the opposite. You know, you look at in baseball um, where, you know, you get more advanced and you actually have, you know, special coach. You have the pitching coach. You have the first base coach. And it's like the more professional you get you have all these resources and coaching and mentoring to do your best. And what do we do in our industry? We leave you alone. Well, you must be fine. (laughs) You're seasoned. You've done this before or you're old or whatever. And it's just the opposite. So I think we need to be okay with saying, hey, I need to, I need help or offering, you know, just making it okay to have that learning, those learning opportunities from each other, especially when you're especially with some experience, because then you can learn from each other.
0: I I knew a person earlier in my career was an executive working for a large general contractor. And this individual actually came into a scenario where they didn't, they were not sure what to do. And they asked for help in a meeting, which was like, seemed like an appropriate thing. And upper management's perspective was like, well, what do we hire you for if we have to tell you? I mean, clearly, they didn't know what to do either. And instead of talking about it, openly, they ran that person off the company. And when that person left, it shut down the entire uh, business unit that they were in, because it turns out that they knew and had the contacts, the relationships and the clients. And within a year of them leaving, all of that work evaporated for that company. Wow! And I don't, I don't think that they ever like look back and, and took ownership of what they did wow. by just not helping somebody because they themselves couldn't say I don't know. And so, for people listening, it's okay to say I don't know. Now I want to go back to Kelly with a very hard question, Kelly. Uh-uh. You've emphasized the importance of operationalizing behavioral change, specifically for Lean in design and construction. So, I would love if you can give some examples of doing this and how it's improved results on the project KPIs that people know and love like time and money
1: sure so or happiness for extra credit or happiness well I can, I can hit all those with uh one example which is meetings so people hate meetings and we have too <laughs> many meetings i i there's not one project that i'm working on or assisting with where meetings aren't a problem and it's not that Oh, you could just solve meetings, but there's so many things that are around it that create a bad meeting. So to operationalize uh, you know, behaviors in a in a meeting, you would like you can still go back to lean principles and say, okay, well, what is the purpose? What is purpose? What is the purpose of the meeting? Translate. What is value? Who are the customers of this meeting? What do they need to get out of it? How many times do we actually ask? What do people need to get out of this meeting? This hour of my precious time. Zero, right? So if we think about that fundamental principle or understand who your customers are and what they value, what they need, that is, uh, one what's step number one of operationalizing a behavior, then seeking to form an agenda or a, a you know, better format or venue to have that meeting that will deliver those results. So, you know, if half the meeting is spent on, for example, um, updating people on things that they could probably go in and find in, you know, something in Procore or something that's hanging up in the big room. Well, that's 30 minutes of waste that we can actually just cut out of the meeting. So that's operationalizing behaviors by reducing waste. And then another example is How do we talk to each other and how do we handle conflict in the meeting so for example you could have you know one or two people that are constantly dominating conversation and driving their agenda and you never have you know the input of maybe different personality types who are a little more introverted but they really have important information to share if you would just shut up and let them talk or ask them so being mindful and conscious of oh wow we shouldn't have the same person or one or two people talking they are taking up all of the potential and we're missing a lot so we we use a phrase a lot called uh step back or step up so if you've been talking a lot step back and allow for someone else to step up so that's another example of operationalizing a behavior which is respect give people the respect you know you brought them to the damn meeting. Well, let them contribute. So, and it's just being, you know, putting a mirror up into our behavior, uh, you know, to ourselves and saying, how can I operationalize this behavior? I can literally do things differently. I could say things differently. So that's just one example of I, of that.
2: Kelly, one thing I've seen you do so well that I do admire is you also just putting a term on it and calling it that. end. Um, we need to operationalize, make visible, document whatever this behavior that's required. Um, that That's a part of it. And it's something that I think you do so well is making it visible to people that we need to do this. And this is something we, I think as a team and a practice, this is where we're constantly learning. And we would love to know what you've seen work, Felipe, because this is hard. Like these behaviors don't Dick. Like putting the systems in place is step one, but then you just have to keep at it and at it and at it. Um, and we're constantly looking for other ways to operationalize behaviors like that. We're on a learning journey up on this one ourselves for sure.
1: And you yeah. just reminded me, I didn't answer the second part of your question, which was the KPIs, but it's related oh. to what you just said, Melissa, which is to make visible. So. So, let's just take the the meeting example a little further. So, what if we made visible the types of uh, behaviors that we need to have, with, you know conditions of success we need to have in our meetings? And we made them visible, you know, wherever you know it's our virtual big room or it's in the big room or it's you know, posted up in front of us every day. Um, and what if we were to, you know, if if these are the things that are important, Obviously, there's the lagging outcomes that we care about, like, Let's say schedule is one of them. You could actually tie better meeting performance to probably a contribution to the schedule. You're you're not sucking up as much people's time and you're getting the right information in the meeting so that people can make the right decisions, which also can keep you on schedule. And oh, by the way, that could have a contribution to cost, keeping cost below, you know, a target. So you could also develop leading KPIs. Like, be, I'm very interested in behavioral uh leading behavioral indicators or metrics. So if, you know, you're starting to track, wow, did we have a hundred percent of the people show up were do they feel like they were able to contribute something to the meeting? Did and did they get value out of it? You know, and there's a simple question. How much of the meeting was value added versus non value added? You know, you just ask those questions once a week. You can track that. And you you know, it doesn't need to be exact, but you can be directionally correct. I'm a big believer in directionally correct KPIs. So. Oh, my
0: God. We have so much in common. Because you know, <laughs> the, the, the more of the two of you talk, I'm just like, I feel like I'm in. If there could be a lean Disneyland, where everybody's happy, I'm there. Oh, my God. If
2: there could be a lean Disneyland, there could be
0: one.
1: down, Melissa. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm there. So that, that'll be a quote for sure. We'll have Kelly. a big
1: party there.
0: Yeah. We'll invite so, all our friends. I had some of the stuff you mentioned, cause you, you asked, you said, are there things? So I've yeah. done some more research in Kinevin, which is spelled C-N-E-C-N-E-C-Y-N-E-F-I-N, Kinevin. It's a Welsh word. Uh, the research that's been done is uh, by mm-hmm. Dave Snowden, not the whistleblower.
2: Oh, it's like, wait a minute. Dave
0: Snowden used to work at <laughs> IBM and he's created this uh, complexity theory it's been a collaboration with a lot of other people, but he's like the predominant voice in complexity theory. I got turned on to him because I was watching a keynote and uh, it was an agile conference. And he said of all the frameworks out there for project management, the only one he respects is scrum. And I was like, I have that scrum label in case people watching the show <laughs> don't know how was I going to work scrum into the conversation? Whatever minute this is, this well, is how I that. did it. Right. Like, this is how I did it. But, but Dave says that in complexity theory, we can operate in different areas and you, as a system, and he criticizes systems thinking heavily and says Good. that like, there's some areas where it just falls short. And, and he's very specific with his critiques. I mean, he is epic. Like you definitely got to check his stuff out and yeah. uh, his book is right. But he, anyway, where I'm going with this, he says that depending on what domain you're in, you could have uh, some enabling conditions. Enabling boundary conditions, enabling constraints. So, Kelly, when you're asking those questions, you're creating space for people to reflect where they otherwise wouldn't. And then just knowing where we are changes your trajectory. So, if I can, it's like when we drive, we Mm -hmm. see the painted lines to the left and the right. Your Mm -hmm. brain will automatically make your hands move to keep your car in the center. Nobody actively burns calories to stay in the middle, right?
1: Stay in your lane. Yeah.
0: Stay in your lane. And the questions you're asking, Tell people like, are we getting more value or are we headed towards a worse meeting? Yeah. And you're going to naturally turn the wheel so that you can go the other that's way. That's
1: right. You'll intervene. You'll make an adjustment. And the more that's, that's exactly right. And so the more that the team is aware, oh, it's actually important that we day, de- you know, we're contributing value or we're actually problem solving. And if you have this indicator it's telling you, oh, you're getting off track. And if the team gives each other permission to and hold each other accountable to getting back on track and intervening, then you're golden.
0: Right. And then and sometimes sometimes Kelly, like, like as much as I love Scrum, I don't always suggest I almost never suggest it to teams. I let them pull for it instead. This is why I try to post on Scrum every day so that there's just more pull. But I work mm-hmm. I work with the team and I knew that the team was in trouble and I couldn't make suggestions to them because they felt like they were already overwhelmed and they could do nothing yeah. else. And so I used that same approach like you did with meetings to, to make it a little bit better and use it as my excuse for intervention because mm. their meetings were terrible. They sucked. It was like God awful. It was I that we could do a whole show on how okay. terrible meetings are. A hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> but now coming back to you, Melissa, now it's your turn. hot seat. Okay. So Melissa, you, super nerd, which I love, I consider myself a super nerd Oh,
2: thanks. Well.
0: <laughs> right, and I knew you would appreciate that compliment. I do. <laughs> you co-created the industrialized construction assessment, the maturity assessment, which almost makes me suspect if I check your background, you might be an industrial engineer. What kind of engineer are you?
2: So I'm not, that's, that's amazing. I'm a, well, I don't know if it's amazing. Um, I'm a geologist by original training, which is obviously the most obvious path to where I am now. Um, And then (laughs) I did, of
1: course,
2: Uh, and I studied environmental engineering and then I just sort of ended up in this industry and then discovered I loved it. So yeah. Okay. That's perfect.
0: That's, that's good. I mean, I, I know what you're reading for fun. Based on Uh, that, so you created the industrialized construction maturity assessment. What my question is, like, how does this tool help organizations better understand the transition to industrialized construction, no matter what their starting point is?
2: So the it's really, really, really simple. Um, It just helps them see. Like, we have to know where we are using the road example, we have to know whether we're on the right side of the road or the wrong side of the road. Um, And so we kind of came into this really honestly that we were seeing people working really hard and doing amazing things to try to change how they were doing all things construction, approaching prefab. Um, trying to establish a product strategy. But what we realized is um, we are kind of an insular industry. We don't necessarily go learn and see from others as much as we could. At least I feel that way. Like we, ca- I encourage people to go to other places and learn. And so we realized people didn't know what good looked like. So they were just on this path. So the first thing it does is it just helps you. So there are seven disciplines. Um, it looks across. It's a very holistic look. It's not just about prefab and bringing manufacturing methods to how you do prefab. It considers how we design. It looks at how our management systems might be helping us move up the curve or actually holding us back. Um, it looks at cultural enablers that might make you ready to embrace change, to experiment, to invest in learning. And so it looks across the spectrum so that you can see what you're already good at, that maybe you could capitalize on to help you move up um, the curve. It identifies areas of gap against real, uh, gaps against really specific criteria. So we also didn't make this up. Um, we went and looked for the best things out there we knew. Manufacturing has levels of maturity. The Shingo model um, was a huge inspiration Um, to us. And so we pulled from these things and said, can we put them in a language that will be meaningful to this industry and this moment that we're in? Um, So it helps you see where you are. It helps you know what good looks like so that you can then decide where to invest. Oh, this thing I was about to invest in isn't actually the most important thing to invest in. I should shift my investment over here. Um, and then it helps people imagine the results um or know what the measurable results they might be able to get by moving from level two maturity in, you know, how you're doing um <laughs> materials management or how you're setting up your warehouse to level four maturity. Cause these things sound great. These ideas that we bring forward sound great. And what people want to know is what the heck is that gonna do for me? Like that sounds great. This Kanban thing you're talking about is amazing, but What is it actually going to do for me? So it lays that out specifically. And then the last thing it does is because we're learning people, we've identified things that people could just learn about so they could act on this themselves and we'll steer them to resources all around the industry for learning.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I just got uh, chills for this episode's blog post that we're going to have, or we're going to have a link to. Melissa's industrialized construction maturity assessment so that people can get into that thing and, uh, see how immature we are. <laughs>
1: it's the and feature the ride accident. at Disney.
0: Yes. It's, it's a feature ride, yeah. Kelly. You're right
2: it's it's the,
1: at the lean Disneyland. It's the ICMA yeah. ride. You will like, want to go on it.
2: Haven't you both had transformative moments in your career? It's this aha where you're like,
1: oh. uh uh-huh everything
2: i thought was wrong or i didn't i didn't know anything about this right i thought i was good at this but then when i did my 360 feedback it was like oh gosh i have so much to learn and work on like i yearn for those things and that's all we're trying to do is help others um be able to see those things so
0: i just did a 360 feedback and i had blind spots it was a It was cool to have a coach like point some things out to me that it yeah. made no sense. And it came, it wasn't mm. surprises from like my supervisor and one of my mentors. The surprises came from my peers. And that was like mm. super unexpected on left field because I do a lot of reflection. So it's like, it's for everybody. I'm immature yep. as well, be the first one to say. So <laughs> I can't wait to There's get on the mic, Kelly. We're
1: we all immature.
0: But now <laughs> when I ask you both, as, as you work to create high performing teams, and, and I think that we, we've seen enough low performing teams or average or mediocre teams, what are some of the key attributes and behaviors that each of you has found contributes to the success, a shared success, when people come together?
2: Our, I know, because uh, Kelly and I talk about this all the time, our shared number one is curiosity. Be curious curious, curious, curious about about others, about what's going on, uh, about what's happening outside the sphere that you can see wherever you're working. Um, that just innate curiosity, I think is maybe the defining, uh, for me, the most important um, feature of a high-performing team. A highly curious team is gonna learn fast. They're gonna work together differently they're going to see. So that, that one, I know we share, Kelly, as critical.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's because it's directly related to the, the ability to learn and the desire to learn. So, you know, we've just been talking about learning. And, and so if you're not curious, you're not going to want to learn. If you don't learn, your team won't learn. And if your team doesn't learn and act together based on that learning, you're going to make all the wrong actions. So that's really key. And and then there's other things that are I guess well one is a little is another intangible but it's a big one. And it it goes back to our earlier conversation and it's kind of being willing to look at your own role and your own identity and being open to that evolving. You know someone on our team said years ago, well, I think we should all be working on, you know, versions of ourselves and he said like I'm probably on version 4.0 at least. And I thought, that is a really great way to think. You're not changing like your core soul. You're just out with a better version every year based on what you've been learning and how you're adapting to your environment. So anyway, that willingness to, you know, what's the next version of myself that would be great? So, and then there's, and then there's the, the more maybe accessible or tangible things that, you know, to look for, for high performing teams, you know, Melissa talked to some of them, like the right management structure, you know, right roles, the right structure, the right rewards, the system of, you know, maybe incentives and rewards and recognition, certainly the people skills, you know, having the right skills and collaborative ability, um, the ability to have productive conflict is very important. And, and then, you know, the, the having the means and methods to support the new behavior as well. Um, can be helpful and that's that's kind of like a, a structural thing you can add on which isn't rocket science but yeah i think kelly, the, the curiosity and the willingness to to learn and adapt yourself you actually reminded me
2: though kelly like we um think of this like aren't these project teams are big and complex and they run for many many years and um they're nothing different than a small company at some level or a small startup And yet yet the difference is, but they're people from all different companies that are bringing their own cultures and their own systems and their own tools together. And so we try to bring best practices from true like organizational behavior to high performing teams. Like you are intentional with how you set up a company, the systems you put in place, the rewards, the metrics, the things Kelly said jogged my mind. And so that sort of intentionality and recognition for us is like an early indicator of a high performing team. We're not talking about, we took this step to do a project charter. Okay, good. It, it goes beyond that, right? It really is recognizing that you are setting up a company, an organization, um, and you have to build it intentionally from the start, not just start doing.
0: I'm just pausing because there's so much momentum to just do and not Mm -hmm. think first or, or recognize what we've designed. And, oh, we're definitely on the rides now. We're on the rides. So (laughs) I want to ask you, uh, (laughs) I want to ask you both, if you could each share, you know, one success story from your, your specialty, your favorite flavor at this theme park of this lean amazingness, where you saw a significant improvement that made a difference to at least one individual, if not the entire project.
1: Well. I had one, um, that stands out and it was really formative, um, for me. It was kind of like an Uber project. Um, but we worked with an organization that, um, an institution, um, that was looking at it current condition and it had just a ton of, you know, it was trying to manage its facilities. It was trying to improve the overall condition of. You know, they had done a condition um, facility condition assessment, and it wasn't good. <laughs> and, you know, when you looked at, well, it's not just about renovating buildings or buying new buildings or, you know, increasing our capital budget. it was about stepping back and looking at how are we um, maintaining these on a daily basis, and who are the people who are expected to maintain it? so it was it was looking at the fact that, or 80% of their uh, maintenance was like emergency or corrective maintenance. And they needed to to flip that ratio, right? And we used a lean approach and we brought everyone together who was contributing to the, well, the design, the construction and the operation and maintenance of the buildings. And the more that we understood uh, the things that were getting in their way and gave them venues to talk about, well, You know, before, you know, replacing this, I have to get, I have to sign, get this permission slip signed by my supervisor. And now that might take a couple of days. And, and then, oh, if we don't have it in stock, I have to go out to Home Depot and, you know, do it. And they were just like literally, we identified thousands of hours in wasted time. And you can just translate that into wasted talent right there. So it's people in the organization wasting thousands of hours because just because of, you know, processes structures that they were set up in. So you can take the best performing person if they're in a bad process or structure, they're not going to perform well. So just by, you know, identifying those sources, you know, the greatest waste is the waste you do not see, making it visible over and this is obviously a team effort and you know multi-pronged approach, but over the course of seven years, they completely reversed that ratio. And they had more money to invest in their buildings. They were spending less time on emergency and corrective maintenance, they added positions that needed to be added. They improved the flow of information so people could make the right decisions every day. They pushed the work down to the lowest level possible so that you're not waiting for the tops to make decisions, but you're empowering the people closer to the work to maintain and fix, you know, things the way they saw it. So that was like a huge success on many levels and and i think the the the, i think the best thing about that is that those people also approached other projects and other things they're working on in their career differently so i think that's really important is not just like oh great we changed the kpis and you know (laughs) went from a to b like that's great on a project but as a consultant I want to contribute to someone's ability to sustain their performance and take that new way of thinking to the next project and the next project that we're not even a part of. That stands out in my mind as a success. Agreed. Um,
2: and I know what you're talking about, and I was so proud of yeah. them, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I, it's funny I that you told us you were going to ask this question, and I still am like... There's just so many little successes, and I sometimes yeah. I lose sight, I guess, of the impact of the little successes. And that you're, I'm trying to come uh, compile some grand big success story, but to me, it's all the little successes that are out there, like from working, um, uh, you know, on the fab shop floor, and just being curious myself and asking a hundred times, oh, "Why do we do it that way? that's interesting. Why are you doing that that way? Why are you doing that way? To them watching that just simple questioning take hold in the shop. The leader of the shop will ask, why are you doing that way? Then the um, uh, apprentices started to ask, why do we build it this way? And so like a, a simple success story just is just introducing that curiosity, teaching about waste and flow to a a pool of electrical um pre-apprentices in the fab shop and just watching them take it in like sponges right i've never learned anything like this and these questions are so good what is this thing you're doing and we weren't talking about lean or anything we were just asking questions getting them to reconsider why things were done that way and uh The outcome success, I mean, for me, it was all the little things we saw, how they changed a work cell, how they reorganized the warehouse, how they had better meetings, they put up visual boards. But the real impact was when that class of pre-apprentices went out into the field as apprentices, the, the feedback from the foreman was, where did these kids come from? What have they been doing? This is the best class, or I'm sure I just used the wrong word and everyone listening is horrified, but what this is the best group of apprentices we've ever had. And all we did was introduce them to why you would be curious, problem solving, having eyes for waste, going to see and ask why. So that's a big, um, that one is just resonates with me because the feedback from these salty seasoned veterans with like wow, oh they're <laughs> amazed
0: yeah yeah so everyone like listening that. to the show that's melissa's invitation to you to blow her up in the comments
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> with, what do we call that i think that's a great story right. yeah no it's great we'd like that like it's good engagement it's like there's there's no such thing as bad pr <good>
2: i don't know i think you're
0: yeah both of you are you're hitting on stuff i had no idea you were going to go in the directions that you want and that was just
1: yeah
0: fun extra extra juicy good for me i think we'd all you know if deming was still alive today i think we'd probably accidentally meet at a deming retreat for sure we'd all you know we'd we'd be all after class with with dr deming because you're hitting on some really great things that are aligned with some of the first principles approaches that he taught. So I, I love, 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 love all that. And we're gonna switch gears because I, I told you there'd be questions you would not be ready for.
2: Okay. Maybe you will be,
0: I don't know, let's see. So in terms of just sustainable construction practices, cause it sounds like we're playing it, we're playing the long game with what we're trying to do here. How do each of you see lean systems thinking or industrialized construction, reducing the impact of our industry on the world because I think last mm. time I checked nothing pollutes more than buildings.
2: Mm. The, I so many ways. I tell everyone this story. Naive me, um, you know. Before I really started on my lean journey, back when I was a geologist, I was in one of the early lead um, cohorts, right? So I got my lead accredited professional, and I I truly actually thought we had solved the construction waste problem. Like what a dummy I am that I. Believe that, and then I, uh, I realized, oh no, no, that that physical waste lives in all these other places. Right? They're they're just leaving the site to be uh, thrown away back at the fab shop, and it's all the cutting and the reordering of the materials. It's all the stuff we bring back that just sits there um, and is wasted. So this is a long way to say. to me, the first pla- the biggest impact or the first impact I think that this sort of bringing a manufacturing mindset to construction will have is actually in eliminating some of this basic physical waste. It is still out there and with more precise designs and thinking about products and components and using um, the technology out there to actually order only what we need. and put in just in time systems which are easier to do in the fab shop they're still not easy but they are easier to do i think we will make a big dent in physical waste quickly and then i mean the other thing that i think is uh so important and actually everyone out there listening um at like are people tracking their scrap rate? Like this is a really simple thing that we could be tracking um, and uh, moving the needle on and people aren't tracking it. And then I think the more impactful change, one of the more impactful changes that we are going to rethink, I think our materials, um, what we build with, um, how we build, because uh, changing your means and methods opens up opportunity to use different materials actually going back to what you experienced and partnering with your suppliers early on to think about it will, um, that is really going to accelerate, I think our pace of innovation, but we still have to be like paying attention to it and tracking it and measuring it. And I mean, I think the systems that are out there Owners are starting to be asked to think about their scope one and two emissions, and that is coming our way. Um, and I think that will accelerate as well.
1: Yeah. What do been you been think, Holly? What's well, the connection did...
2: to lean? I didn't even go there. I just did I see.
1: Well, <laughs> it's the same thing. I, you just made me think, um, you know, when you look at your electric bill, more and more t- bills are showing up where it's like this is how much energy you used compared to your neighbors. And it's like oh, oh and so making it visible is you no know, step number one um you know it's setting up some friendly competition maybe some pressure like there's the carrot and the stick approach so you know the investors or regulators or whoever or just stakeholders making it clear that they do care about the impact you're having on the environment and what is the embodied carbon of your building and then i think so making it visible and then you talked Melissa several examples about getting upstream, like further upstream. So you're going all the way back to the design process, right? And only designing what's needed. Well, that requires the, you know, the contractors and people who are going to install it actually also being invited to be upstream and work in that level. It means uh, cost estimators being invited to work upstream with those cross-functional disciplines, talking about what's truly needed. So it's you know working in a different phase of the project than you might be normally invited to work in to have those conversations that can then make an impact. And it, it goes back to the the principle of only deliver w- what is needed in the amount needed at the time needed in the right form. And that's going to make a huge impact on waste in our in our environment from construction. And I think Definitely, the,
2: the tech advancements that are coming—you um, know, the ability to collect the data, use it, and analyze it, and make those decisions sooner, see the impacts of those things—like that does matter. So I, I am appreciative of um, all. There are carbon calculators coming out there, right? Autodesk is building things into their platforms. Other people have other platforms. Um, Making it visible, making the data visible will allow people to then use it and act um, and change. We actually added ESG to the IC maturity assessment literally only for the reason of just getting people to think about it and have it be thought-provoking. It's a very small percentage of the questions. It's really... Uh, low waiting, but it has provoked some fascinating conversations where people are like, "What does this have anything to do with what you are what I've asked you to come here for?" And then we start to talk through it, and they're like, "Oh wow, I got to go work on this. so yeah.
0: yeah." It all makes a big difference. Yeah, thank you both for those contributions, and you know, lastly, to put a bow on this for everyone listening to the podcast, thank you so much for for being with us the whole time. If you're listening, that means you're a super fan. At our Lean <laughs> Shangri-La theme park here. I wanna, I wanna have each of you give us, give the listeners, you know, what is a good starting point to implement something from Lean Design and Construction or something from industrialized construction on their project or in their organization?
1: On your project, make it a commitment to go out and talk to someone who is doing something completely different from you in a different discipline, on the project team, and learn more about what are they doing and how is it going and what's getting in their way. One person outside of your bubble, go talk to them and learn.
2: I'm not even going to add another one like that is the place to start. I just think that would Kelly and I are so aligned on this. People need to go see, ask why, and learn from one another. everything else mystical or uh, scary or whatever uh, about lean. Put it all out of your head. Just go see and learn what's happening somewhere else in the system.
0: Amazing. Kelly, <laughs> Melissa, <laughs> thank you both so much for, for coming on the show and going way beyond lean and industrialized construction. These insights for creating high performance. I learned something new that I'm going to carry forward with me uh, for both of you about curiosity. And, and there's definitely value and talking to people like you, because I am i feel like I'm richer now than I was before we started. If you're watching, uh, go and follow these people because they are 100% some of the best change makers I know. Thank you both so much for being on the show.
1: Uh, thank, thank you, Bay. Uh, thank you for a br- being a change maker with us. You're coming Absolutely. along for the ride.
0: Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build.